0: I'm Sarah Resnick, and I'm LaShawn Moore, and we are the hosts of The Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello, hi everyone. On this week's episode, I'm speaking with Kendall Shouter. Kendall received her BFA at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She's worked on a number of interesting fiber-based projects where she deconstructs and reinterprets the fiber-making practice. I'm excited to speak with her specifically about her How to Grow Denim project, where she works with salvaged raw cotton and indigo in order to chronicalize the steps required in creating a 40-yard bolt of denim. Hello, Kendall. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. Thank you for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background, where you're from, and how you began working as a fiber artist? Uh, hello,
1: I am Kendall Schauder. I live in Chicago, Illinois, but I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I moved to Chicago to attend the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in 2012 for my undergraduate and I have been living here ever since and really my time at SAIC was the
0: kind of beginning of me as a textile artist. And can you talk about how you developed your fiber and textile artist skills while you were there?
1: My mom taught me how to sew when I was young and then also taught me how to crochet. And I really kind of refined things when I went to SAIC. I was able to take classes in weaving and machine knitting and able to kind of fluidly move with my curiosities throughout the school. So it really kind of helped me root myself as a textile artist to Learn so many
0: different facets that can go into the making of textiles. It's really interesting to hear you talk about kind of being at the beginning of fibers. I kind of feel like I'm the same way. I didn't really start working with textiles specifically until I went to school and I started to learn more. I think that it's interesting that you see it in that way and also thinking about some of the pieces that you've created that kind of look like a investigation or deconstruction of various ways that we make textiles. For instance, your project 16-bit weaving that you did in 2017. Can you talk about what that project was and also how you created it? Absolutely.
1: That's a very special project to me because it was really, I think, kind of the start on what I now think of as my textile practice. It kind of all started with this thing, for the lack of the better use of a word, of a calculator that I made. The calculator basically visually showed 16 bit binary numbers in a series of white and black boxes. And so what you would do to interact with the calculator is you would input these number series. So you could pick any number series that you want. And what the calculator would do, you would input these number series one by one. So if I put the first number as one, you would press enter in this kind of visual representation of these white and black boxes of the binary would actually move that series up on the screen, and you would input a different number. So it would be a different series of white and black boxes. And the calculator would put a number in between it, what either had to be added or subtracted to the first number to get you to your second number. And so as you keep putting in numbers, it just makes this grid of black and white boxes that have this kind of information of all these numbers that are encoded into it. And it just became this kind of way of layering pattern through these different number series that I found very interesting. And it actually was just kind of making that with my own curiosity, trying to understand how coding worked in this class. And I was just really fascinated on watching the kind of logic of the numbers changing and the numbers working in these machines. And it was actually my teacher who was like, this really looks like a weave draft. And it kind of was a light bulb. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is. It's all just binary. It's a string up, a string down. I already knew how to weave at the time. But I had kind of taken a break to follow a bunch of other curiosities I had in the school. And I ended up kind of sitting down with one of my friends who was taking a jacquard weaving class and kind of telling her about this calculator. And she's like, oh, maybe we should use it. But we just kind of started looping in conversation like, The mechanics of the jacquard though yes we could pick up all these individual threads to represent this pattern it was almost too much it was Mm. it was overkill it was like i don't need however many hundred strings the jacquard has to represent this (laughs) i was like we will be going on forever if we're trying to use that many threads and represent that large of a binary number So I just kind of let that lie, kind of let the whole project kind of fade into the background. And then eventually it bubbled up again. And it was just, I wanted to make it as an object that I could kind of go back to. So I decided to use the prime numbers just for sake of taking something kind of precious, a number series that was kind of nice and a little mystical in a way, and Mm. put it into my calculator and was able to have this kind of pattern I didn't really have to think of. It was just these numbers I had to input and the actual logic of the calculator would do all it wanted to do. And I ended up making a loom that was mounted on the wall with just 16 strings. It led me to realize I didn't need all the mechanics of the other looms. I, What I was interested only existed within 16 threads. And I wanted to find the best way to visually represent that. And it ended up being something that could be mounted on the wall and can still kind of live in my house even. That since this is the amount of prime numbers that can be represented in 16-bit binary is like 65,000 or 65,000 numbers can be represented in 16-bit binary. And so I don't know exactly how many prime numbers that is. But it's a decent amount. Like, it's going to take me a while to actually represent them all in this textile. So it kind of became just this project. I have thought about everything that kind of had to be put into it. And now it's, honestly, it's an object that I can perform with. All the, like, engineering is there. All the logic is there. And it just takes labor to kind of put it in. It's just me. I already know the numbers. I already know what actually needs to go into it. So it's something that I can kind of live with and go back and forth with. And it can be an ongoing living with project for me.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you talk about weaving in such a mathematical way. I mean, every once in a while it comes up in the podcast where weavers will talk about the schematics and the numbers and how um, it helps them mentally kind of connect with the weaving a bit more. I'm really interested in learning about how you create the mechanisms that you use because I, when I was looking through your work, I saw a lot of different machines and there's woodworking and there's a bit of robotics or I don't know if robotics is the word, but machinery. Um, there's a, a aspect of, uh, machines and machine making in your work and so I'm interested in you talking about how you created the the various machines like the one for 16 bit weaving as well as the knitting machine and also how you gained the skills uh in making these types of mechanisms.
1: Yeah, of course. Um definitely the like drive to making the machine just kind of started with kind of curiosity on how things were made, how the textiles were made, and really especially with the knitting machine that I made. That whole kind of project started by me thinking about how to make the simplest visualization I could muster of knitting. And I didn't know exactly how to start I had used the knitting machines before at school and really found them fascinating and I just really wanted to break it down even simpler because I think so much of when I was trying to show people the knitting machines and really the things that kind of excite me about it is just the simple logic and that it's just latch hooks holding loops i found all that so fascinating but it seemed just so oversaturated I wanted it to be even smaller and a really just kind of visual representation of the logic that's happening in these mechanisms so I just kind of started mulling like how I could make a machine To I started originally just with one knit like I wanted it just to be one single knit and just through thinking about how to actually mechanize that it ended up being simpler just to make two knits for the mechanism that I wanted to use I ended up being able to put the whole thing just on a simple pulley which is weavers or spinners no pulleys it's basically all what a spinning wheel is it's just one big kind of rotational force that rotates something in a circle so the knitting machine could kind of all if I used two knits could all work on this rotation to make all the actual mechanizing happen and how I kind of learn this. I mean, I did take one mechanics class at SAIC, which really, I think, helped me kind of formally construct how I was thinking about, especially pulleys using motors and things like that, how you could kind of translate motion in different ways, which is, I think, kind of comes into where I start finding all these curiosities, like I love the loom, like how we can use different types of forces to implement different types of motion and how we use those as tools and how we can kind of isolate and hone those different facets of the mechanics. And I have to thank my school, SAIC, because being able to really... Travel throughout that school and try different woodworking classes, try mechanics classes. It really just kind of let me pick my brain in all different places and it really worked for
0: me. Mm. I mean, they're all very beautiful machines, and what strikes me the most about them is how sort of streamlined and simple they are. It's almost like you can see the it's like um when I think of knitting machines I think of the ones that like we typically use that look sort of like keyboards and what I liked about your knitting machine was that you can literally see the hooks and see them pulling and it's very reminiscent of doing it by hand and so it has this handmade touch to it. I'm wondering if you ever see yourself making machines on a larger scale or kind of continuing to follow this work and making machines that are going to, I guess, make more products in the future, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm like... No, that totally uh, makes sense. <laughs> Not because, because, you know, essentially, essentially you're making machines, you're making knitting machines, you're making weaving machines. And so I'm really curious about how you think about your existence and the machines that you're making in the textile industry, being that we are kind of in this middle ground where industrial knit making and industrial textile making is kind of falling largely because of the cost. And this seems to be a very accessible type of machine. It's,
1: it's a funny because my machines definitely do have an aspects of mechanics, but so much is kind of drawn from the hand and drawn from me actually working with them. So I think specifically for my art practice, a lot of my machines are kind of personal. They're almost a way for me to visually display what I'm thinking, and mm. I really don't see them as product makers. I see them as kind of visual examples and a way for me to kind of learn about the machines that are in the kind of larger textile environment because now I work at a small scale weaving mill and I work at a weaving school and I think making these projects and really thinking about weaving in the way that I've come to really enjoy it has made it so I feel a little bit more comfortable if there's a repair that needs to be happened on the loom. I can kind of think in that same way of What does the loom need to do? Oh, this needs to lift, this needs to lower. What are the components that go to it? So Mm. my work being a place where I can kind of learn and develop these skills that I can then take and apply somewhere else in a more industrial or more (sighs)
0: production-oriented space. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah yeah it does it it honestly makes me think about how when I first saw the pieces I understood weaving and knitting a bit more if that makes sense like (laughs) I was like wow this is so it's it's almost like you simplified the process in a way that my mind is able to really grasp what's happening um and so, yeah, you saying that kind of made me jump to being like, wow, that's so simple. It's it's so simple, but yet, yeah, like, super brilliant. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's a
1: simple, like, a simple idea can grow into so many different facets. And I think that's one thing I really love about textiles. Very simple mm-hmm. logic
0: that can expand in so many different ways. So one of the projects that drew me to your work and why I'm excited to have you on the podcast today is How to Grow Denim, where you made denim as a performance piece, going through all the steps required in creating a 40-yard bolt of denim. You started with raw cotton and even grew indigo. Can you talk about what inspired this project and the process? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Uh One thing is this project is definitely still going on. I'm still cleaning, still spinning, and I'm chugging along. <laughs> but um it's funny. I listened to your first podcast when you started at GIST, and you talked about how your whole venture as an agricultural farmer kind of started with an epiphany of you looking at the clouds and I feel like I had a very similar kind of epiphany moment but Mm. it was a very long-winded epiphany I think it was an epiphany slowly evolving over two years (laughs) (laughs) as slow as my work um (laughs) It all started, I was in a natural dye class and my teacher, we were transplanting indigo and we were actually at the point where we were having to take out some of the seedlings because it was going to overcrowd the plot in our little dye garden. And it was kind of hard for me to be a part of I was a little probably overcaring with each of the plants I really kind of wanted to find a space for them all I just mm-hmm. kind of felt their value in a way I was like I would want these plants I don't want to just kind of rip them out and toss them into the compost heap or something and my teacher ended up coming over and just kind of scooping up a whole handful and handing it to me and was like take them home and I was like holding this like little pile in like both my hands and was just like excited I completely left after that I was like oh really and just started talking to them and walked back into the building and was like okay these are mine and kind of just really started growing indigo from that moment. I took them home and planted them in my apartment. And probably that first summer, I had maybe 10 plants. Wow. And what variety of indigo was it? I should be able to tell you that. I can look it up. But... (laughs) It is a type of Japanese indigo, and
0: okay. it actually, so that's probably Persicaria tinctoria.
1: It's definitely peanut tea, so I think you're on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> it originally came from Roland Ricketts. If you, yeah, I'm,
0: I'm familiar with Roland Ricketts, so it's most likely Persicaria tinctoria. Especially so if you were growing <laughs> it indoors, I would imagine it would be Persicaria tinctoria and i i believe i remember looking at the images of them growing in your apartment if that if those are the images that are on your site
1: and it looked yes, like uh,
0: persicaria tinctoria
1: all right why growing them inside would you know that more than other strains of indigo
0: um because persicaria tinctoria is a non tropical indigo so the indigo that i grow is indigofera suffruticosa um uh, which is a tropical variety so usually in colder climates or climates that have shorter summers um persicaria tinctoria is more cold hardy and it's uh it's not an indigofera so it It's not water-soluble, so the extraction is different. Um, So they're they're different varieties, but I think that Persicaria tinctoria would do well indoors as opposed to Sifurikosa because it likes a lot of heat, a lot of sun, and um, it gets very, very tall. Like, it can get to six feet you know oh wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) amazing yeah it's a really it's a really beautiful variety um very very beautiful variety
1: well that's what I have here and honestly (laughs) they loved my apartment they flourished I Mm -hmm. have very big windows that are have western Facing sunlight, and they just mm. flourished. My plants got huge that summer, and I didn't really know what I was doing with them. I was just kind of taking care of them as I thought they needed. I gave them water when it looked like they needed water and just kind of let them keep doing their thing. And in the end of the summer, they sprouted little blooms, and I was just like, oh, look, they have little pink flowers. And I realized that each of those flowers was making a small seed. So I ended up letting a couple of them actually evolve into fully developing their seed and took their seeds. And was like, I'll try to replant these and see what happens. I wasn't sure what would happen because I can't really have things pollinate in my apartment. It's kind of a closed ecosystem in here. There's not bugs flying around. So I didn't really know if these seeds would work. I was kind of even shocked that I had them in the first place. And I planted them the next summer and they they grew. <laughs> and so I eventually found later that this specific indigo, or I don't know if it's all indigo, produces asexually. So it's able to make seed in, without actually being pollinated. So it it really just worked in my apartment for kind of a stroke of luck. And I have been growing indigo in my apartment ever since, collecting, letting some of my plants go to seed and collecting the seed each fall and continuously just kind of creating this cycle of plants growing in my apartment. And I've had up to probably 60 plants in my apartment at a time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's They're fun. <laughs> it's amazing. I really just loved growing them. And they just kept, I think, enjoying the sunlight in my apartment. So I felt like I just had to keep letting them grow. And in the beginning, I didn't really have a plan for them. I, after that first summer, I had just those 10 plants of leaf, and I knew a little bit about the process, because we talked about it in my dye class, but I never had actually done it from fresh leaf before, and so I was like, I'm not ready to do this yet. I don't even know what to do with these leaves, and there doesn't seem like there's that many, so I ended up drying them and storing them just in five-gallon buckets in the corner. And then continued the next summer and was like, you know what, I still want a little more. So I dried that session of indigo and kind of added it to the stock. And I wasn't actually sure if the drying process would work. I was like, we'll see what happens. Kind of just taking a leap of faith. It seemed logically it would work to me. And then I was, how the project continued to develop, it was a conversation with my brother. I was on the phone with him, and he was moving out of Houston and moving to a town called Corpus Christi, which is about three hours out of Houston. And he calls me when he's driving, and he's like, You would love this. There's cotton fields all on this path as he drives on the highway. And just so happened the day he was moving, one of the cotton fields was in the midst of harvesting. So there was cotton balls kind of flying around everywhere. (laughs) And he was like, you would make me stop this car right now and go try to collect them. And I was so jealous. I wanted to be there so bad. And I was just after that conversation with him, I was like, oh, yeah, just outside of Houston where I grew up, there's giant cotton fields and giant cotton gins. So I started thinking. Basically, I wonder if they would sell to me. How much would I have to buy? Would I, would they even sell to me at all? And I just seemed a little over daunting. And all honesty, I imagined I'd have to buy huge quantity or something and didn't really know what I would do with a huge quantity of cotton. But kind of in the midst of that conversation, I was like, I'm going to get some cotton. And that's going to be for this indigo. I want to spin it. I knew I wanted raw cotton. I wanted to spin it and I wanted to dye it with my indigo. And when I was thinking about that first, the first thing I thought of was denim. And the kind of, the name just kind of fell out how to grow denim. It just felt like this whole project was kind of growing throughout this time of me growing the indigo of these kind of stories that it was slowly developing and so this was just kind of in a side burner in my head hadn't fully came into fruition yet and then I went on kept doing whatever I was doing I ended up graduating school in 2017 and that August Actually, a hurricane hit Houston and a lot of Corpus Christi, Um, Hurricane Harvey. And my family was okay. My brothers were okay. My friends and everyone was good. But it did so much damage to everything around. And I was not even there. I was in Chicago at the time. And had just checked in with everyone. And then I ended up going to visit a couple months after, once everything had kind of gone on the uphill, the water had drained. And, um, really Houston and the areas around it were just starting to do the rebuild, kind of giving everything back together. And I was sitting on the couch in my mom sent me this article. She's like, you need to read this. And it was one of the cotton gins that was actually in between uh, my house and my brother's new place. And it was an article basically talking about how they lost their whole cotton harvest due to the hurricane. It was after they had already harvested the cotton. So it was sitting in bales in in the big stacks that they keep it in in the field before it gets processed by the gin. And it was kind of in this middle ground before it had been ginned. And the hurricane hit and basically threw it everywhere. It was all over the fields and i was scrolling through this article just looking they had images of trees that were drenched head to toe in cotton it looked like it had snowed and i kept reading on the article and they were basically like we can't use any of this we have tons however many tons of cotton just simply became unsalvageable after that and that they didn't really know what to do with it and I was just like I gotta try to find a way to get some of it I was like I it felt so hard to imagine so much material and so many things just kind of being crushed at that moment I was like I want to I want to save what I can and I was like I don't I don't even know if we will still have it like it's been a couple months, like, what, where would it have gone? And so I ended up just calling. uh, It was Bayside Richardson Co-op Gin. So I ended up just calling them on the telephone and was like, I saw this article of your cotton. And honestly, I'd be interested in procuring some. And he was like, come take as much as you want basically it's just sitting mm. in our fields like we don't know what to do with it and I was like okay I'll, I'll come <laughs> on Monday and so I drove up with my brother stayed with him for a night and then drove out to the gin I borrowed my dad's truck and was just showed up there by myself and was like Hi, like, can I see what happened? like, can I see? And it was just fields of soaking wet cotton. It's still- it had been months and these were still just piles of damp co- cotton. Cause Houston's pretty humid, so every morning we have kind of like a dewy morning. So even in- we have heavy heat, but it wasn't enough, it wasn't drying this out. So it was just piles stacked a foot taller than me, so probably like six feet tall, and just yards long and stacks all throughout their field of just this wet cotton. And it was just more material than I've ever seen and could even really fathom of just being there. And so two of the men who worked there came out and just basically helped me start bagging. We were kind of just taking off a somewhat dry layer that was on the top and filling up 50-gallon trash bags and loading it into the back of the truck, trying to take as much as I could. you after I left you couldn't even tell I made a dent (laughs) like it was such a small fraction of like the quantity of material that was there Mm -hmm. but now I have more cotton than I even can fathom but it was just yeah it was I really saw a difference in scale at that point and just couldn't even imagine losing that much material and what that all affected but I ended up just taking what I could and tried to save what I could in a sense and took that back home and basically just laid it out in rows uh outside my parents house to dry out in the sun, (laughs) because basically the reason they couldn't process the cotton in the gin, why it all became unsalvageable, was due to the moisture. So it made Uh the seed too soft, so the gin wouldn't actually be able to separate it from the fiber. The Uh seed would just get crushed in the gin, and it would damage the gin in the long run. And not Uh actually take it out. And there was no efficient way or economical way to dry out all this material to be able to use it in the scale that they really needed that to happen. So I tried to do it in a scale that I could handle. So I took whatever I could bag by myself and dry out and store in my parents garage (laughs) (laughs) as I could and it just kind of began from there I finally had the cotton that I was ready to work with so I just started taking out seeds at that point (laughs) and started spinning yarn and and slowly keeping on going with this project
0: and so how far into the project have you gotten as far as making your point to the creation of denim? Like, I saw that you had spun it and you had yarns and I see the indigo. And um, I also saw, I believe it was at Textile Arts Center in Manhattan, where I think I actually saw your piece. Um, so I'm I'm also curious about that presentation.
1: Yeah. So right now I am still in the process of spinning. I am taking out the seed by hand. I had toyed with the idea of using a small tabletop gin, but it was just faster really than I needed it to be. Um it for what it takes me to spin, I can if all the yarn I can spin in a week, I can take the seed out of that amount of cotton in about four hours. So I didn't really need it to be faster of that in a way. I Mm -hmm. feel like after spinning for a week, I can take four hours and just kind of DC while trying to multitask or something. And do you spin by hand? I do. So I have two ways I've been flipping back and forth between a spinning wheel and a drop spindle because I feel like they kind of put my body in two different positions. So it's kind of nice mm. to go back and forth when I'm just kind of continuously chugging along. <laughs> and I I really have come to love the drop spindle. I think I get a lot of control with the thickness of the yarn and I like that I can kind of take it with me. I can just kind of put it in my bag if I'm going to the park or if I'm going to a friend's house or something. I can just kind of have a little stash of cotton to spin and just kind of be my own little
0: activity in my bag. Spinning cotton is, is really difficult for most people by hand so I'm kind of curious do you um, make a, a roving out of it and then spin it or are you literally like taking pieces and spinning it with your drop spindle so I'm
1: carding it into like a thin piece of roving and mm, a lot okay. of people have I think when I first learned how to spin I learned how to spin kind of in passing uh Somebody sat down on a spinning wheel, just a friend at school and was like, "Oh, this is how a spinning wheel works and just kind of showed me with a little piece of wool and I was like, "Oh, interesting! Just kind of toyed with it a little bit, but never really like committed myself to spinning a lot of yarn until this project, so I really have been learning to spin during this project at the same time, and i No cotton is difficult to spin, but it's also, it's just about kind of a dynamic. It's, it needs a very fast spin to get it to take, and it hasn't, I think, been harder for me to spin than other materials. I think there's just a learning curve, maybe, if you're only used to spinning wool, I think wool has kind of a forgiving nature to it. I think whenever I'm spinning cotton, it really likes to be spun finely and just a really quick spin on the actual spinning wheel to keep it all together. So it's definitely been a curve, but also, especially at my time at Textile Art Center, I was in their work in progress residency, so it was really a perfect place for me to kind of show this piece because it was how do you show a work that's ongoing, that you're still making, but it's gonna take so long to make, I kind of have to show it while I'm doing it. So the Textile Arts Center really gave me like a beautiful place to kind of show what's happening and show what I'm doing and be able to kind of talk to people about it. And while I was there spinning, a woman walking down the street just kind of saw me out of the side of her eye and came in and was like, my mom used to spin all the time. I used to sit with her at her feet. And she's like, you're holding it kind of wrong. Try and hold it like this. And (laughs) just through small interactions with people, learning as i'm going and making these small corrections to make things faster differently mm-hmm. and i think that's really kind of what this project is giving me is
0: learning as i go <laughs> yeah that's amazing that's wonderful i'm excited to see where this project goes and i'm sure the people listening to this podcast are going to want to hear an update, so yeah, it's just uh the process and how you've kind of found yourself in this space and I also really admire that you're really taking your time to to learn and to really be involved in the process. I think it's really really beautiful. Do you have any new projects that you're working on currently other than this one
1: i i do i've Definitely tried to take on some side projects so I'm not continuously just spinning. So I'm making a series of paintings right now with, uh, handwoven canvas. So mm. I originally started as an artist, um, painting. I used to, that was really my art outlet. And had just kind of something about that has really, um, kind of taken hold of me again and I kind of miss it. And now that I'm a weaver, I couldn't just buy canvas. It didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking on another project to weave, um, canvas out of some cotton that I, I had, uh, Cotton's from a project that I did previously with a fashion designer, and she gave me kind of the whole end stock of the cotton that she purchased for it. And I already had all this material, so it seemed like the perfect thing for it to kind of make its way into. So it's right now they're just blank. But I want to make a series of... Paintings on these hand woven canvas, so that is definitely something that is in process at this moment.
0: That sounds amazing. We definitely uh have to post some images of your woven canvas. It's such a beautiful idea.
1: yeah yes, I will i'm I have two matching panels right now that are already woven. they just need to be mounted on their frames well. So once those are all mounted, they will get photographed and displayed.
0: Perfect. And where can people go on social media and the internet to follow your work? Absolutely. You can follow me on
1: Instagram uh, at uncomfortable underscore online and you can also see my work on my website which has a link on my instagram is an easy way to get there but you can also just go to Uh k-e-n-d-a-l-l-s-d-h-a-u-d-e-r
0: perfect so before you go we have a question that we ask everyone that joins a podcast, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Definitely
1: be patient, be patient with yourself, be patient with your material and trying to learn as you go it's I think things can sometimes get overcomplicated and we can make really like strict standards for ourselves at how fast and how things need to be done in a specific way, but be kind to yourself and give yourself the time that you need to really let things grow.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a wrap. If you're interested in supporting Kindle's work, you can find links to her website in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 120. On next week's episode, I'm speaking with Sydney Goss, an interdisciplinary artist and adjunct professor in sculpture at Alfred University. Sydney works with an array of materials that she uses in her sculpture, installation, and fiber practice as a means to respond to issues between power structures and gender inequality. I'm excited to bring that episode to you all next week. Until next time, happy weaving!